Hello everyone. Welcome to another installment of First Chapter Friday with the Inglewood Public Library. Today, I'll be reading the first chapter of the book, Invincible, by Amy Reed, published in 2015. I read, Let's go to the cafeteria, Stella says. She's restless. She's always restless. Unlike everyone else in here, she's not in pajamas. Every day, without fail, she puts on her black skinny jeans, big black boots, a thick coat of red lipstick, and her signature black fedora with the peacock feather sticking out of the side. Even though all we ever do is sit in each other's rooms, even though we're not allowed to leave hospital grounds, even though the only people she talks to voluntarily are me and Caleb and Dan, the child life specialist, and none of us could care less what she looks like. Are you hungry, Caleb asks. His pajamas have soccer balls on them. Mine are pink with white hearts. The left leg is cut off to make room for my white plaster cast, decorated with sick kids' autographs. No, I'm not hungry, Stella groans. I just need to get out of here. Aren't you guys going crazy? How can you not be going crazy? She's like a caged animal. Pretty soon she's going to start gnawing on the metal bars of my bed. She was like this even in outpatient, even when she knew she was going to get to leave in a few hours. My parents are going to be here any minute, I say. I should stay. Have you asked them yet about adopting me? But you have parents, Stella, Caleb says. He has a hard time with sarcasm. Stella's diagnosed him with mild Asperger's in addition to the brain cancer we already know about. I'm going to get legally emancipated, she says, just as soon as we get this whole cancer thing figured out. I'm only still their daughter because I'm using them for their health insurance. God, Evie, I'm so sick of your room. We've been spending a lot of time in my room, and by my room, I mean this particular room during this particular stay, which is going on two weeks now, my longest yet. There have been countless identical rooms over the past year, some in this part of the cancer floor, some in the super-duper sterile prison part of the floor where my white blood cells count was zero. It's a little hard for me to get around right now because I just got surgery and my leg is in a cast, so I can't just hop out of bed whenever I feel like it. Not that many kids on the cancer floor do much hopping. I may seem lucky for getting one of the few single rooms, but everyone here knows they are reserved for the hopeless cases so some other kid doesn't have to deal with a dead roommate. This one is pretty much the same as every other room I've had. So many by now that I've lost count, but half as big. I wasn't even here a night before mom put the same sad decorations as my last long stay, to make it feel more like home. No number of family photos or teddy bears or bouquets of flower would ever make this feel like home. All they do is confirm that I'm going to be here for too long. We could go to the teen lounge, Caleb says. We could play a game. The teen lounge doesn't have any windows, Stella says. Turn the TV to the Discovery Channel, I say. It will be just like looking out the window, except you'll be in Africa or underwater or something. Or it'll be some reality show about Amish prostitutes or morbidly obese dwarves who talk in tongues. That's TLC, I say. The morbidly obese dwarves. You two are no help. Plus Dan might be lurking in a teen lounge and he would just try to get me to talk about my feelings. It's good to talk about your feelings, Caleb says. Dan says it will make you feel sicker if you keep things bottled up inside. When have you known me to keep things bottled up inside? Good point. You guys don't have to stay here, I say. You can go do something without me. I'm fine by myself. Oh, Evie, Stella says. Don't go acting all heroic. We're not going to leave you in here all by yourself. Really, it's okay. Can you stop thinking about everyone else for once and just admit that you can't live without me? I want to watch the football game, Caleb says, grabbing my remote and turning on the TV. I hate you, Stella says, but she doesn't move. 
There aren't a whole lot of other options for us as far as activities go. Watching football in a cramped hospital may not be everybody's idea of a good time, but it could be worse. It could always be worse. I first met Stella eight months ago when I was going in for my third round of chemo. It was her first and she wasn't happy about it, which I could tell because she was climbing the eight foot tall stuffed giraffe outside the outpatient oncology center while her mother and a security guard were trying to talk her down. Her mom was actually like trying to scream her down in Mandarin, but neither approach was working. She held onto that poor giraffe's head, screaming bloody murder onto her mom, finally managed to pull her down. And as she fell to the floor, she made one last dramatic proclamation, calling everyone heartless, bloody dickos. Parents covered their kids' ears. Her mother swiped her on the side of the face with the back of her hand. And I decided Stella was both the most beautiful and bravest person I've ever seen in my life. She was showing all the fear and fury I felt, but could never let out. She wasn't pretending to be anything she wasn't. I walked up to her as she sat under the giraffe, sobbing. I sat down next to her and I said, Hi, I'm Evie. Her makeup was smeared, but that somehow made her even more glamorous. Are you getting chemo? I asked. Yeah, me too. It's not that bad. I'm going to lose my hair, she whimpered. I can't lose my hair. She had beautiful hair. It was long and straight and perfect. She had thick bangs that came all the way down to her eyes. It was rock star hair. You could get a wig, I said. My hair had already started thinning. Everyone assured me I was still beautiful, as if that was the most important thing for me to worry about. Wigs are for old ladies. What about a hat? She thought about that for a minute. A hat could work, she said. I could totally rock a hat. We walked into the clinic together, our mothers following close behind. My mom tried valiantly to befriend Stella's mom, but Mrs. Sue was cold and suspicious right away. She still is, even after all this time. Families get to know each other well when their kids are in and out of the hospital all the time. When they're sitting together for hours on end in the injection clinic. They hug, they bake each other things and buy each other Christmas presents. They cry for each other's children, but not Stella's parents. They're always off to the side, silent, miserable, judging, and alone. Stella and I got chemo that first time in adjacent rooms. After a few minutes of lying there while the poison pulsed through the potticat tube drilled in my chest, I heard a knock on my wall. I knocked back. She started a series of steady measured taps. I thought maybe it was Morse code. I didn't know Morse code. Then I started counting and noticed a pattern that repeated itself after seven clusters of taps. You have a lot of time to kill when you're getting chemo for eight to ten hours. I pulled out my phone and dialed what I counted. She picked up on the first ring. From that moment forward, Stella was my secret best friend. By secret, I mean only in the cancer world, the hospital world, the world of sick kids. Stella and I never see each other outside this world. In the other world, the world of the well, we are other people. We are people who would not mix. In the other world, she's in an all-girl punk band and I'm a cheerleader. I mean, was. Past tense. I'm not really sure what I am now. In the other world, I already have a best friend. K.C. Wexler Bean has had that title since she walked up to me on the first day of kindergarten with her bouncing blonde pigtails and said, Do you want to be friends? We've been inseparable ever since. Onto the cancer, that is. How can friends be anything but separable when one has cancer and spends most of her time either in the hospital or at home recovering from being in the hospital? How could a relationship not change when one is dying and the other is not? When one is halfway in another world that no amount of love or history or devotion will ever help the other person understand. But she tries, and I love her for that. At first, a lot of my friends joined her when she'd visit, either piling into the living room while I recuperated on the couch, or even coming to the hospital when I was too sick to go home. 
I could be hurt by their absence now, but I understand. And I don't blame them. They have their lives to live, and they shouldn't waste them sitting around watching me get sicker. And honestly, it's a relief to have fewer people to smile and pretend for. But Casey's forever loyal. She still comes to visit with my parents or my boyfriend, Will. But over the past few months, especially since I've gotten sicker and stopped going to school entirely, it's gotten harder and harder to find things to talk about. Harder to find things we have in common. What do you talk about when one person's life has stopped and the other's has kept moving forward? In some ways, I've already said goodbye to Casey. I've already said goodbye to my family. They may not know it yet. They may think I'm still with them, but I've been drifting away for a long time now. The world of the sick has been claiming me a little more each day. With each round of blood work, with every CT scan and PET scan and bone scan and every biopsy and bone marrow aspiration, every surgery, every chemo injection, every radiation treatment, every blood transfusion, every pain med, every hospitalization. After a year of this, it's a miracle I still know how to speak to people outside the hospital. It has been so long since I belonged in their world, no matter how hard they try to keep me in it. No matter how hard I try to stay, but I haven't said goodbye to Will yet. I can't. Even though I know it's selfish, I can't let him go. I can't release him. Some part of me still believes we can make it through this together. That our love is strong enough to work miracles. I can't imagine going anywhere without him. Even death. Wherever or whatever that is. I have no idea what's going to happen to me after I die. I don't even know how to begin imagining it. People keep telling me it's going to be quiet and peaceful. That will be a place I can be forever happy. But I don't believe them. The only thing I know for sure is it will be a place without will. Wherever I go, I have to leave him behind. And how can that be paradise? What's the point of heaven if the person you love most in the world isn't there? And that's the end of chapter one. Amy Reed, the author, was born and raised in and around Seattle, where she attended a total of eight schools by the time she was 18. Constant moving taught her to be restless, and being an only child made her imagination do funny things. After a brief stint at Reed College, no relations, she moved to San Francisco and spent the next several years serving coffee and getting into trouble. She eventually graduated from film school and promptly decided she wanted nothing to do with filmmaking. She returned to her original and impractical love of writing and earned her MFA from New College of California. After 13 years in San Francisco Bay Area, she now resides in the mountains of Western North Carolina with her daughter and dog. Invincible is a must-read for young adult book lovers. It's like the fault in our stars and Go Ask Alice had a baby and this is what they produced. A dramatic romance about a teenage girl who survives a terminal cancer diagnosis only to get trapped in a deadly spiral of addiction. What happens next? To find out, visit the Inglewood Public Library at library.cityofinglewood.org to check out this book and books like it. Thank you and see you next time.